This is Republic of INSEAD, the 20 years later O3D podcast edition. I am Milena Ivanova and will be your host in this limited series. So, here we are, 20 years later, hopefully all the wiser, naturally smarter and as charming as ever. There were 432 of us in the O3D vintage. And certainly, there are 432 unique and very interesting personal and professional stories to tell. While I cannot physically cover all, I have tried to make a selection of stories that will keep you interested and curious and will hopefully convince you to join us on campus for reunion. Welcome to the Republic of INSEAD podcast edition and enjoy the show. All right, he's not used to that, but now he's going to do it. An engineer with a second master in molecular, molecular biology goes to INSEAD and now is maybe about to disrupt one corner of our world. But first things first, here's his 20-year-old Republic of INSEAD yearbook entry, open quotations. When he decided to attend INSEAD, he didn't know to what extent his life was about to change. The future biotech entrepreneur moved to Fontainebleau with the idea of meeting cool people and having a great time. He didn't expect that his MBA major would be earned in Buron Marlot, as he specialized in psychology in order to manage daily fights between his roommates Natalie and Stefan. It was pretty easy for him to write his OB paper on conflict resolutions in groups. As any good MBA student, he was able to make use of the leverage effect. Now that he knows how conflicts arise, he makes sure he avoids them with Amélie, his charming wife that he married in Marseille on July 11th. His prior Japanese experiences brought him back to Asia for P5, where he spent most of his time but well in, in warm sand. End of quotation. Welcome to the Republic of INSEAD podcast edition. Mr. Guest, do you remember who wrote your profile or does it sound familiar? It may be, maybe Daniel. Okay. I'm not okay. sure. Okay. And I've said this before, but with you, I have to repeat it again. I am shocked again and again how scarily accurate the forecasts on so many of us are from that yearbook. Now, whoever wrote your profile needs a lecture from you on the difference between medtech and biotech. I did get this one in, in our briefing, so I'm ahead of the game. But uh, we'll get there shortly. Let's, let's start from the beginning or the end. The last 20 years of your life in a nutshell, and you have five minutes for that. Yeah, so the last 20 years have been busy, like I'm sure many of us. And uh, I think one of the central pieces was that I was blessed to, with but, uh, with our two kids, uh, Clara, who was born in 2004, and Elliot, who was born in 2006. Uh, so it was really, uh, I think that's one of the great uh, achievements and journey of my life. Uh, eventually, I did get divorced. So, uh, but that happens. That happens. Uh, and uh, I was also very lucky after that to to find a new family uh, with my partner uh, now we have four kids uh, she had two kids on her side uh, and uh, honestly going through the four kids family is an amazing experience to to us so i really 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 enjoyed it and uh, no I, on the personal side it was a it was a, a very 
rewarding uh, period of my life uh, where I really enjoyed every uh, single bit of it with the ups and downs as always. But to be very um, honest, uh, I'm so happy uh, where I stand today and uh, I would not change uh, anything from, uh, from that journey. On the business side, uh, uh, I did not remember this notion of biotech entrepreneur. It's funny. And I would have never described myself at the time as an entrepreneur, to be honest. Uh, so maybe people see things through you that you didn't even uh, see uh, about yourself when you look uh, in the mirror. Uh, and an, when I was at INSEAD, one of part of this journey of, was to ask myself whether I was really certain I wanted to stay in healthcare. Because right after university, I joined the healthcare industry through the biotech side, uh, microbiology and molecular biology angle. And towards the end of INSEAD, I, uh, I was convinced that this was the industry I wanted to stay. And right after, uh, I still decided to, to remain in that industry. And I looked what should be the, my first role. And I decided to work for a Swiss biotech company. It was a large organization. And I decided to start as a sales rep. So trying to be in contact with a customer, with a surgeon, with doctors, mainly taking care of the patients. Uh, and then I had many uh, operational role, marketing manager, sales manager, sales director. So I really evolved in that kind of business side of industry, where I used to come from the scientific side of industry. And that led me to another great company. Uh, after Serono, uh, I was contacted by the husband of a good friend of mine from, uh, from college. And basically he was looking for, he was working at a company called UCB, who was uh, really going through a, a, a huge transformation. And they were looking to bring um, new folks in the organization with a different uh, mindset. And I really love the people I met there. Uh, and uh, not only I liked the company, but I love so much the people uh, when I interviewed. And honestly, at the beginning, I just interviewed out of politeness, just to be uh, nice, because I was asked to. And the people I met there were just amazing. And I told myself, uh, you want to have an impact. This is one of the reasons why you have been in uh, that industry. And the best way to have an impact is to, to be with people you, you know you're going to... Uh, be able to contribute. And this is how I ended up uh, moving to Belgium uh, and work for UCB. There were amazing years. There I worked more on uh, corporate roles, marketing. They sent me to the US to work on uh, market access, which is basically uh, all the components where you work with insurance and, uh, and, and payers to make sure that your, your treatments are seen as valuable and uh, covered. And eventually they sent me back to, to Europe to run the same group, but globally. And after three weeks, they asked me to switch and take on the, become a general manager of a French affiliate of their nerve business, neurology business. And these were really amazing years. And at the same time, my ex-wife, Amélie, was thinking of establishing her medical practice. So the back and forth, global affiliate, global affiliate was not the right option for us as a family. And since uh, after INSEAD, we've been traveling a lot, uh, we decided uh, that was the right time for her to set up uh, her own practice and uh, for us as a family to settle. She was a doctor. She's a she doctor. was a doctor. She okay. was a, yeah. She's a medical doctor. Yeah. She's an endocrinologist. And basically, she settled and set up her practice in South of France, in Marseille. 
where she was, where we were, uh, where we orig originated from. And uh, I was working in Paris. And basically, um, uh, after a few years, UCB wanted to send me back uh, to the headquarters and eventually to another affiliate. So I thought it was a time maybe for me to to take my own journey. I would say so. And uh, at the same time, I received an email from uh, the CEO of my first company, first job right after college, and he sent us an email with a. Uh, an email address and I say, oh, that's a strange email address. Never heard that company. Uh, and basically, uh, I asked him and he told me, I, we must have a coffee to, to discuss into more detail. And basically, he had the vision to create a startup studio in healthcare in Paris, where the vision was to start and uh, finance and grow and uh, eventually create a fund after that for healthcare dedicated organizations. The name of that project is called iBionext. And basically, he told me, uh, I'm looking for CEOs and people. I have been able to scout many technologies. So if you're interested, just look at them and pick one. And this is really how it started. I left UCB and starting to look at technologies. And along that journey, which took uh, roughly six months, uh, I was able to meet scientists from the MIT who had invented a, a new technology. Uh, and basically, I spent one week in Boston. Professor Bob Langer, Professor Jeff Karp, and a, a young uh, PhD named Maria Pereira. They had invented a, a very quite uh, profound technology in the domain of tissue repair. And we decided all together to start Tissium, which is a medical device company. So I, this is how I moved from biotech to medical device. And we started the company, uh, the four of us, and uh, we, Maya joined us as our chief innovation officer. Uh, she eventually went to INSEAD uh, a few years later as a full-time uh, MBA also, and she, then she came back to the company. So to, that's how uh, I've been busy for the last uh, 20 years, I would say. I've been working with Antisium for the last 10 years. So we're just Very celebrating nice. the 10 years anniversary of a, of a company anniversary year. All right. So what did you say has been the most challenging aspects of, and it could be both personal and professional in these 20 years? I would say finding the right balance between a personal life and business life. And I'm a bit bimodal. Basically, I work or I spend time with my family. Uh, I'm not a very social, I'm a, not a great social animal, I would say. So making sure that uh, you uh, I was able to to spend the right amount of time uh, where it was deserved. To be honest, I really love what I do, so I don't necessarily see it as work. And because I don't see it as work, I can spend too much time on it, by definition. Uh, so making sure that you, I was there, uh, for, sorry, for the right moment for, for 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 my family and my kids was quite important. Uh, but besides that, honestly, um, I loved it. I love those last 20 years. I'm very excited for the next 20, to be honest. Uh, but yeah, the challenge was to find the right balance uh, and make sure that you, you can accommodate the, the people you love and the people you work with. On your work, you work with scientists and they are also your partners, I understand. What are the easy and difficult parts about working with scientists? And clearly you come from an engineering and... Uh, biology 
background. So you are a scientist, but you're a business person. So yeah. So <clears throat> what can be seen uh, and myself being an engineer and uh, having done some uh, some science, what I like it's it's a domain which is uh, in theory data driven in the sense that the data is uh, at the core of the discussion. I would say. And uh, <clears throat> so for me, I, I kind of like it and uh, it's, um, I'm at ease with uh, numbers and concepts. Yet, what is a bit surprising, and it took me a certain time, scientists can be uh, somewhat emotional, not on the data, but on the way they perceive their work and the way they try to, to achieve. And one thing that was uh, quite important, and when I say emotional, is in the sense of not rational. Yeah. Okay. The opposite of rational. And it has been some, sometimes a bit surprising. And sometimes scientists try to seek for perfection, which is uh, in reality not achievable. Uh, and one of, the big one of the big challenges, you need to make, to make sure that they move their mindset from sometimes perfection to excellence. Because excellence, you can reach it. Perfection, you will never. And one of the big challenge uh, in uh, at least at Tissium starting the, the company is that you need to translate an idea into a product. So if you keep seeking for pure perfection, you'll never get there. So you need to define what are your excellence criteria, what are the must, and how you get there. And uh, that's really how we, we, we worked. I was extremely, extremely, extremely fortunate uh, to meet at the beginning of that journey, Maria, our, uh, my co-founder, who is an amazing person, besides being an INSEAD alumnus uh, now. Uh, and when we met, basically, she has been central to everything we did uh, when it came to science. And to that respect, Maria has the right balance. And she's the one seeking excellence, not perfection, extremely pragmatic, but at the same time, extremely demanding. And she was able to really uh, help us craft the company uh, we have built together. Uh, and she has been able to surround herself with people that uh, will follow that uh, balance of seeking, uh, not always seeking, not seeking for perfection, but more seeking for excellence. Very interesting. See, I learned something new again. I love it. So on... The entrepreneurial, you said you were never planning to become an entrepreneur, and there you are. What would you say are the most rewarding aspects of being an entrepreneur versus the corporate world? So on the rewarding side, I think it's really ownership. I'm not saying that in the corporate world, you cannot own your decisions, uh, the good ones and the bad ones. But sometimes you are uh, facing um, uh, some decisions that are pushed down to the organizations. Uh, Sometimes uh, they may be short-sighted. Uh, Sometimes, uh, unfortunately, decisions are more driven by politics than what's good for the customer, in our case, the patients or, or the surgeons, or what's good for the company. And in a, in a small entrepreneur, entrepreneur world, especially when you start from scratch, we are the limiting factors. So if we tolerate such behavior, you're responsible for it. So it's your own failure. Uh, and what I liked about being an entrepreneur is this notion of uh, ownership uh, on the good one, on the good decision and the bad ones. And uh, we make, unfortunately, uh, 
because we are human, many bad decisions, but we can correct them uh, quickly. This notion of as an entrepreneur, you don't have a boss, etc. It's not true. Uh, you have a board and instead of having one boss, you have uh, seven or eight bosses. You have shareholders. So the reality is you, always, you are accountable to others the way you would be in a large organization. The difference is you can navigate yourself and you are responsible of, of a path. Mm. And uh, as long as you have an agreement with the board and the, and the shareholders, uh, you're still in charge. If one day uh, you're not anymore, then you, you have to go, mm. uh, like in a, in a large organization. So uh, I would say that uh, what I really like is that notion of true ownership. There are also some difficult aspects, and I don't, I don't know if I'm more linked to the, being an entrepreneur or the CEO role. There is a form of loneliness, basically, mm. by nature within the role, because people look at you for an answer, and uh, you don't look to your board asking them what they think. You ask, they, so you, you, you work with them to, uh, I would say, um, ensure you are asking yourself the right questions, uh, getting the right answers, so you leverage them as an as a uh, advisor, a network. At the end of the day, the decision is made by the board, but this is an informed decision, a construct decision that you build with them. But as a CEO within the organization, you happen to be somewhat lonely. So the fact that I was able with Maria to build that kind of partnership was extremely, extremely uh, central to uh, where we have been able to to go so far. And I think alone, I would not have been able to to do it by myself. Uh, I'm not sure I would have, yeah. because we we face so cha- so many challenges uh, during that journey. That when you're alone, I think it's it's already hard when you're uh, two. Yeah. But when you're alone, uh, I think it's even harder. Well, I had this in uh, another episode of the podcast with Ricky and Mike, and in fact, they said they both got together in business after INSEAD and they said, because doing it alone is crazy. You cannot survive the whole time being on your own. So they say, even when they look now at other businesses to invest in, they look and they say, if it's a, if it's a single founder, uh, it's a lot more challenging just because life happens, right? Business and life, everything. So for sure. I, I completely agree uh, with uh, with them and with that statement. You, wh- what can happen? It did not happen to us, but what can happen is uh, you have a one founder that starts, but he needs to be uh, actively seeking to bring on board uh, people committed for the long term, uh, because I think it's about the commitments, about the duration of that commitment. Because uh, uh, when you build uh, important things or novel things it takes time it doesn't happen over day overnight sorry and basically uh you need to work on on those things and uh because it's long because it's hard uh, it's always easier to be uh with someone else and that gives me a great uh entry into the topic of med tech and what you're actually building i said in the beginning you're about to disrupt a part of medicine let's say Tell us about TCM. Tell us about the technology. Maybe start with the lecture you gave me, medtech, biotech, pharma. I have interviewed by now. So we've had Andrew Booth, who is in biotech, Kavya Gopal, who is in pharma. Um, so looking at the health 
broader health industry. We have quite a few classmates in, in the broad uh, field, which is great. But walk us through and then TCM and then the technology. Yeah, very briefly. So he uh, healthcare, I would say uh, you could, it's very, um, it's a basic description. Huh? Uh, you could split it in, in two directions. The, the drug world, where basically uh, you put, uh, you give a patient um, a treatment that will uh, work on his uh, body or metabolism or, or the cells, everything. And the, the tech world, which is med tech, where basically uh, you design or you craft devices that work, that supplement some functions. Uh, to give you an example, glasses, lens, or medical devices like a pair of gloves or a table in VR. And it goes to another extreme, heart valve that is implanted uh, or pacemaker would be also medical devices. So you can see these are physical objects that will have an impact. And uh, also diagnostic are considered medical devices, uh, diagnostic tools, you know, the, the COVID test we used to do are medical devices, I would say. And so the world split in two, and typically uh, the pharma and biotech will work with uh, doctors, medical doctors, whereas in the space of medical devices, you, we tend to work with surgeons or biologists when it comes to, to diagnostic. Yeah, and in, in the case of TCM uh, specifically, we are developing uh, implantable devices, so we work solely with surgeons. And uh, in, the <clears throat> in the space of um, the medical device industry, basically, it's an industry that is uh, very uh, US-centric. The big, big players are US organizations. And uh, a lot of innovation is coming from a small organization uh, like, like TCM. So what do we do at TCM? Basically, it came from an insight from the MIT uh, at the time. They, they in invented a new material to try to reconnect tissues during surgical procedures. And if you look at the way it's done today, basically the surgeons are using uh, staples, sutures, nails, tacks, and all those techniques were translated from, uh, I would say, craftsmanships, how you put together two pieces of fabrics. If you do that on an inert material, that's not a big deal, but as soon as you do that on a living tissue, on a human body, basically, in some cases, in some instances, the, um, the technology you are using will create a trauma on the tissue you're supposed to repair. In many cases, it's not a big deal. It can be a scar or whatever. But in, depending on where the surgery is done and on which tissue it's done, the repair itself can be detrimental. And the insight from the MIT was, what if we were able to invent a technology that, uh, and basically it was a new material, that would allow to repair and reconnect tissues without traumatic, uh, in an atraumatic manner, in a non-penetrating manner. And basically they developed a polymer, so it's a liquid compound that can be used inside the patient's body. And that material can be used, uh, it has the same consistency as uh, honey, basically. So you can, use, uh, you can use it as an adhesive to reconnect tissues together. You can also use it as a resin to fabricate implants. And today we are using it to 3D print medical devices that are then inserted inside the body and then fixated to the body using the liquid form of a, of a polymer, the adhesive. And we can even use it to deliver drugs. 
So that was the very broad invention from the MIT. And as you can see, it's a platform in terms of applications. And one of the challenge was that, where do you start from? And uh, that was one of the challenge at the beginning uh, of a journey, basically. But thankfully, with Maria, we always had the vision that if the technology, uh, if we were able to translate the technology from this idea or concept into a, a product, there should be more than one product. And we built the company uh, from day zero with a very optimistic mindset saying, if it works, it should work in many areas. So let's build it so that when we get there, we can replicate and uh, develop multiple solutions for, for patients. So today we have developed three uh, surgical verticals. We operate in the space of peripheral nerve repair. Uh, where we can reconnect the nerve after a trauma, an accident together. Amazing. You basically insert the uh, severed nerve into a tiny chamber that has been 3D printed by us. And to give you a sense, the smaller chamber we, we have is a 1.5 millimeter diameter with a 7.5 millimeter length, where you can reconnect the nerve without damaging the tissue itself. So you insert the nerve and after you fixate that chamber using the, the adhesive on the outside, the nerve will grow and the chamber and the adhesive will bioresorb. They will go away eventually after uh, the surgery has been uh, completed and the tissue has been uh, fully restored. Uh, we have another uh, set of program in um, ventral hernia repair, which is uh, abdominal reconstruction. And basically when you have a, one of a trauma, we use the polymer here to fixate the implants that are used, standard implants, instead of uh, yeah, screwing them into your abdominal cavity, today it takes 20 to 30 tacks. So this kind of uh, extremely invasive and penetrating technologies, we're able to coat the implants and uh, <clears throat> insert, make two tiny holes in your abdominal cavity, go with uh, devices and cameras and deploy the, the mesh and fixate into your abdominal cavity in a, in a non-invasive manner. Down the road, it will be we, uh, we believe we will be able to use this with robots because it's the uh, same application. So that's uh, uh, our domain in, uh, in, a, in GI. And the last one is in cardiovascular surgery, where we are using the polymer as a sealant to ensure that the anastomosis, basically when you're putting sutures on the vessels, the arteries, uh, if you have a leakage, you can... Um, close that leakage using the polymer. So today we are working in those three domains on a total of seven products. So in each of those domains, we have multiple products. And our strategy is to develop the technology uh, by ourselves. But also in some cases, we will work, we will commercialize the technology directly to hospital and surgeons in the, in the business domain where the number of surgeons are somewhat limited. That's the case for nerve and nerve repair. And in the case we have to go in a domain where you have many, many surgeons to, to call on, our strategy is to partner and license out the technology with existing players that will benefit of our to add this technology to their existing portfolio. So we have a kind of hybrid commercialism strategy, but all the research, all the developments uh, is controlled by TCM. We have a very strong uh, portfolio of IP. Today, we have more than 20 families of patents which have already generated uh, 60 or 70 plus patents, and we keep inventing uh, every year. The other crazy thing that we had to do with Maria at the time was uh, nobody has ever produced the polymer, so there were no subcontractors 
and the equipment that was required, the industrial equipment that was required to produce the polymer has never been invented or fabric built. So we had to build it, and then we had to make the decision, where do we put it? In our own factory or at someone's factory, being highly dependent on uh, that third party? So with our investors and shareholders, uh, and, uh, with the board and our investors, we made the decision in 2017 to build a state-of-the-art manufacturing facility, which is in the north of France, with no commercial product. Because in, the, in our industry, which is highly regulated, basically what you submit to the authorities needs to be assessed, validated, tested with a commercial version of your product. Because if you produce something in a tiny lab that is of good quality, and you develop all your validation, and you submit that to the authorities, they will approve it. But the commercial product would have to come from the same supply. If you yeah. were to change the supply to bring it in a new facility, you have to redo everything. And because we had this platform approach, and we knew that uh, if we, we hoped that if we were successful, we could really deploy many applications, we made a huge bet at the time, really made a huge, huge bet at the time, which was, Let's build a facility. Let's produce uh, batches to regenerate the data so that eventually we can uh, go commercial with those technologies, which is why today we are submitting to the US authorities more or less one product every nine months because we collected all the data and now we are at a stage where we are submitting, submitting, submitting. So uh, the company is really uh, growing and ex expanding uh, at, the, um, at the current time. Amazing. And so how, how much capital did you need to get to this point? How much um, have you raised capital? No capital. So we raised a total of 170 million uh, in the last 10 years. Uh, yeah. We did the last fundraising in, uh, in March, uh, late, uh, yeah, in March uh, 2023. Uh, it was a bit hectic. It was between SVB and the Credit Suisse. So it was an um, uh, unusual uh, period, but uh, we have a strong uh, base of investors who have been supporting us. They believe in the story, they believe in the vision, and uh, we are really executing. And uh, as I said, this year, we have been uh, busy uh, submitting to the authorities, uh, having in parallel multiple clinical trials. Uh, and for a company of our size, typically when you do one of those events or twice a year, it's huge already. And we did uh, those key uh, submission slash uh, start of clinical trials. In the first six months, we did uh, four of them. Mm. So the company is really at the stage where we are uh, massively accelerating. We are starting to build the commercial infrastructure in the US. We will be launching these technologies first in the US. So yeah, the company is really moving away from the R&D organization into a commercial organization, and we hope to be commercial next year. And how big is the team at the moment? So we are uh, a bit, we are 110. Mm -hmm. So we have 10, 10 plus folks in the US. The rest is based in France. We have 30 people, 25 to 30 people at our manufacturing site in north of France and 70 plus in Paris, where we have uh, the headquarters, research, development of the innovation group and the development is, uh, is based in Paris. We are in Bastille. And so... What is the down the road? You said you're looking forward to the next 20 years. So what's the vision? Where do you see this in the best case scenario? Where is TCM? Where is the business going? 
Yeah. So many, we are a bit unique in the med tech space and uh, we are not proven yet in terms of business model because we have a, a slightly different approach. In the med tech space, usually innovation comes from a surgeon speaking with an engineer because they are facing a challenge in the operating room and they would like to do it different. And then the engineer looks around themselves, uh, what are the building blocks? They innovate and they assemble new technologies that were never assembled together before or in a new way. What VMIT did was completely the opposite. They came up with a material that we are designing into products. So this has two implications. The first one is if we are successful, the technology will not be limited to one domain. If you, if you design a, va uh, uh, an aortic valve, it's going to work for the heart, nothing else. Which is why most of the medical device industry in the past has been driven uh, through ac uh, acquisition. The startup is built because of a need. They demonstrate that they can address that need successfully. They start to have some sales. And after a large player comes down and acquires the company, because since you only have one product or maybe two products, you will never license it. So those companies get acquired. In our case, we could easily foresee uh, a situation in which for certain th therapeutic domain where the polymer is used, we keep them for ourselves and we said we are just a standard medical organization, medical device organization. But for others, as I said, we develop them and they commercialize it so we can license it because we have multiple product licensing one here and one there will not harm the capacity of a company to keep innovating. Another layer which is key is we have full control on the supply. And the way the products are fabricated, we are using what I would call pharma-grade processes, which the medtech do not master. So they would have to rely on, the, on us as subcontractors. So we have the idea is to have an open innovation system where you can use the technology for multiple applications. We facilitate this, all those innovation steps because we, we know the product pretty well. We also supply the technology for ourselves, but also for third parties. So down the road, uh, 10 years, 20 years down the road, success for me would look like uh, we have multiple business verticals. We are commercializing some of our, our product directly with partners, but also people come to us, whether they are innovators or large medical device organizations saying, we have this medical need, what could we do with your technology? So basically our polymers become a new standard as many materials are already available in the industry. And we create a new standard in the domain for a traumatic tissue repair. That would be, uh, this is really what we have been trying to build uh, so far. Uh, so we are on that journey. Uh, we need to prove a full business model. I believe it will be, uh, we are working hard to prove it in the next uh, two years, I would say, by bringing all those technologies to the market and then fine tuning the commercialization strategy. We. I think one of the un unique components of TCM is because of this notion of platform, we have the optionality at commercialization, which typically med tech startups don't really have because they have to sell their, they, when you have one product, you have to demonstrate its value uh, up to commercialization. In our case, uh, our goal is to have multiple products, giving us the flexibility on the commercial path. Is your, late, uh, your last round of... Uh funding uh is the valuation of this confidential or it's public excuse me 
the valuation at which the round was done? Is it public or it's confidential? It's confidential. Okay. But to me, it sounds like we are talking to a, a unicorn founder. So down the road, maybe <laughs> one of well, one of the other components is that uh, we built Tissium to remain independent. Yes. We never build the company hoping to get acquired. We don't say it's never going to happen, but we never crafted the organization hoping to be acquired. So you make very different decisions because you make decisions for the next 20 years. Uh, so sometimes these are hard decisions, hard commitments, and you need to identify investors that believe in that vision. Because uh, if an investor is hoping to have an exit in the next two years or three years, uh, the discussion will be very different at the board. As someone who tells you uh, what you're trying to do is big, uh, it's going to take time, uh, and we're going to give you time. Please uh, go fast, but we're going to give you the time that is required. So, And I was very fortunate to find uh, some of those investors. One of them was uh, Sophie Nova with Antoine Papanik. Uh, he joined us in 2016 as an investor. And basically, he gave us the, the right to dream big and to really put in place and in motion that uh, platform strategy. Amazing story. I love it. I get goosebumps, really. Like. <laughs> I wish you the best, the best of luck, but it sounds like um, very, very exciting times ahead still. Uh, would you ever go public or? That's a, poten yeah, that's, that's a potential path, especially if we want to remain independent. Because if we were to keep advancing the platform, one acquirer would be more interesting in one product than the other. So they would not value the entire organization the way uh, as the sum of the parts, because they would be interesting only in one or, or two of the pieces. So, uh, as I was saying, if we are successful, the path towards becoming public uh, increases over time. What's the biggest risk to the success scenario? Today, we still have to finalize some regulatory uh, validation, which are central. Okay, uh, And, you know, in healthcare, you need to be very, very humble. Uh, you're dealing with... Uh, biology uh, and it's not it, it, it's a pre, it's a science it's a precise science but it's not mathematics one plus one sometimes you don't know exactly uh, you need to study so I think humility is key and this is something I've learned uh, in the past few years uh, you need to have a long-term vision and you need to know that it's not going to be a straight line so we have to go through the regulatory process the technology has been de risk the manufacturing capabilities has been de risk uh, our capacity to address multiple therapeutic domain, the platform and the multiple product approach, I, I'm, I believe have been the risk. So now it's really executing uh, so that we can uh, put together the right uh, dossier so that the healthcare, uh, I mean, the, the regulators approve our product. And after it's commercialization, it's a commercial execution. There you are. Well, good luck. Fingers crossed. Super exciting. Thank you. If we can uh, move to INSEAD and... Um, your connection to INSEAD, you mentioned your, in fact, in our briefing, you were saying that you encouraged Maria to go to INSEAD and choose INSEAD. So what's your thinking? What have you gotten away from INSEAD? And um... Yeah, so so I think it was, um, I, I like the funda foundational component of a curriculum, especially from an engineer. Uh, and uh, I felt it was uh, useful to me, but most importantly is a, uh, the personal experience uh, at INSEAD, the people you meet, the way it broaden your horizon. Clearly, you understand that you learn from others and uh, being in contact with others was really instrumental. 
I really think that um, it allowed me to to go on a different orbit, to to change my uh, trajectory uh, in a good way and in a fun way because uh, I've not yet uh, met someone from INSEAD who felt that the year was terrible. <laughs> uh, so you have a great time. Uh, you try to get smarter. You meet great people. So I really believe that, especially after working a few years, it's a really a great time to reflect on what you did before and where you could go. And as I mentioned to you, it was for me a year where I really asked myself, will you remain and stay in the healthcare industry? And uh, the answer was my answer not an answer that was driven by my work activities and uh, you're stuck there because you have been doing that without asking yourself a question. So I think also what I really like with my yet inside, it, it was a time for, at least for me, to ask myself some questions or to have the time to ask those questions and maybe get an answer. So I think it's, uh, it's very cent- it was very central in defining who I am today. Uh, I was blessed in my um, life to be uh, to attend some great uh, uh, education organization, my middle school and high school, uh, I was educated uh, in a Jesuit school, and uh, it really was. Uh, the, I, I now see it as a defining moment for me, not at the time, but uh, thirty years after, and uh, this is why I believe that those spe- unique institutions can have an impact in shaping you and inside is one of them yeah and you're a green donor pin holder so already giving to INSEAD how do you think about giving in general and then giving back to INSEAD in particular yeah so uh, I think when you are lucky enough to receive at some stage it's good to to give back in different forms and there are many different ways to give back for sure and as I said, I was very fortunate to to be exposed to and receive a lot. So uh, I think uh, having an opportunity to give back is, is central. Uh, INSEAD, as I said, uh, has really helped us. And uh, when we have a capacity to give back, we uh, I think I would recommend to do so because then you create an evergreen mechanism so that things keep growing by themselves. Uh, and that's a bit central. Uh, as I said, I was very fortunate to be in an in a, in amazing mid-school and, uh, and, uh, and high school and uh, where my kids uh, have been, uh, by chance, I would say. And uh, they asked me to, to spend some time and uh, help them out on a few items. So I've been volunteering for the school as a board member, but also we are helping the, we are helping the school build a new campus in, a highly, um, in, a, in Marseille. In a, in a district with a uh, high, I mean, with a lot of inherited people. And basically, you really see uh, by helping and trying to build those things, you really see what you did receive. So again, I think uh, uh, I was fortunate to receive a lot and uh, it's time to give back in a good way because you want the others to be able to, to get it and do the same uh, down the road. So... Uh, what everything that has been organized at INSEAD, and thank you, uh, Milena and the team for supporting it, uh, is central. Uh, and the opportunity to give back and, and keep INSEAD growing and evolving as we go is important. Mm. Well, thank you very much. Now to the last bit, which is the quick round of questions. If you are ready, we start. Proudest achievement? 
our kids and my new family of six. <laughs> I love it. Success for you is? Happiness and having an impact. Okay, so happiness is success. There you yeah, go. Yeah, for me, it's <laughs> things. Uh, yeah. Just success is, uh, that's what's driving me. Hmm. Biggest regret? Uh, I'm not the kind of person that looks back. I try to learn from my experience, but I don't regret. Hmm. Uh, I own my mistakes and move forward to try to make uh, different mistakes. <laughs> Great. What keeps you awake at night? Um, I'm a very good sleeper. It Excellent. takes me five to 10 minutes to fall asleep. So uh, I may wake up in the morning uh, by myself, but I usually, uh, I'm a good sleeper. That's good for long life. If you had to do it all over again, what would you change? I would, uh, nothing big in the sense that I really love the life I have, I had, and I would not want to change anything major uh, being afraid uh, not to to meet or I mean and live with the people I, I live now. So uh, I would tweak stuff, but honestly, uh, I'm not saying that I'm happy uh, and uh, arrogant. It's just that I really love the, uh, my life. I love the people I met, and uh, I would uh, I would hate not to have them around me. Mm. So I would keep it as it is. Mm. Wish you had known or someone had told you? Uh, what I wish... Uh, so maybe... Uh, something I, I'm still learning. I'll learn a bit later. I'm still learning. Uh, maybe take care of myself a bit more. Mm -hmm. I'm in good health. I'm very lucky with that. Take care of myself a bit more. Uh, in the sense, practice a sport on a regular basis. Uh, be a bit more healthier in my behaviors. Uh, not try to go to push too much to the limits. Uh, and now getting 50, uh, I start to be a bit more reasonable <laughs> on those things. So, uh, and it's hard to learn to get a new habit when you're 50. Uh, if I could have had that habit when I was uh, 15, I'm sure it would be easier. So my kids uh, do practice sports and that's great. Uh, I'm very happy for them. I have no responsibility. It came from uh, their mother. So uh, she was much better than I was on that uh, with them. And uh, I wish I could have learned that a bit earlier. Mm. Retirement ever or never? I would say never. I don't anticipate to retire. I may do different things, slow down, but I would not retire. If you had to pick one book everyone should read. Okay. <laughs> so one of my favorite books is the, uh, the Little Prince, Petit Prince. Mm -hmm. I loved it when I was 10. Again at 20, even more when I was 30, still at 40. And uh, I'm thinking of reading it again now that I'm turning 50. Honestly, it's uh, uh, one of my favorite books because uh, I think it says a lot about people and relationships. Yeah. So I loved it. Mm. Most admired public person? So uh, in the past, uh, he was not that public, but he was the person I admire the most. And now he's public, so I can share with you his name. Uh, it's my brother, Stefan. Yeah. So I always, uh, we have a very, very close relationship. I always admire him the most. And he has been doing an amazing, amazing... Uh... Well, maybe you should give the background because I don't think people necessarily uh, So Stefan, know. St my brother Stefan is the CEO of Moderna. There you go. So and they have been able to, to give a, a vaccine to us. Yes, there you go. So, and he is in the world of biotech. So I don't know yes. how that works. Did he also study biology or what's the... No, he started medtech. 
he started that's true he started diagnosis and moved to uh, drug after his MBA at Harvard mm. and uh, I did the opposite okay so now we have a Harvard INSEAD competition no like no competition biotech. <laughs> never but do you ever consult each other on the business aspects or when we are with a family we tend not at all to speak business because uh, Uh, we both have strong presence, so it would kill the family reunions. <laughs> When we need to speak to each other, we we, we call, uh, we leverage. I mean, we we chat. Yes. Yeah. Mm. But that's not the, the the central part of our relationship. Yeah. Healthy siblings are. Yeah, I mean, we, it's a relationship, right? It's not a yes. transaction. We so. speak uh, multiple times a week. Text. Uh, I mean, we are very close, but it's more on the family. Yeah. Uh, on us than the business at all. Most despised public person? I don't have time for that. I don't <laughs> Excellent. All right, and the last one, are you coming to reunion? Yeah, How's for sure. Looking? All right, Obviously. there you go. Obviously. I sent all my friends to make sure I would be there. So, yes. Super, all right. Now, I can finally say officially, this was a conversation with Christophe Bancel, who is an entrepreneur, founder and CEO of TCU. And I'm very much looking forward to the next 20 years and news coming from, from that end. Thank you so much for your time and for your generosity and very much looking forward to seeing you in October. Thank you, Milena. Thank you for everything you do. Mm, looking pleasure. forward. Take care. You were listening to the Republic of INSEAD 20 years later, O3D podcast edition. It is my hope to remind everyone what an interesting and dare I say colorful bunch of people we are and how much we can contribute to each other, be it through ideas, knowledge or mere inspiration. The podcast is inspired by the original Republic of INSEAD yearbook produced on paper 20 years ago by Oliver Bradley and team. Thank you, Oli and team, for this contribution to our class's memory and for letting me continue in the tradition, title and inspiration included. Creator and author of the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D podcast edition am I, Milena Ivanova. Original music by Peter Dundakov with help from Their Films Productions. Stay tuned for more and remember to book your tickets for the 20-year reunion in Fontainebleau, October 6th, 8th, 2023. Thank you for listening.